Kathy Marston is my guest on Downtime today. Kathy is an award-winning choreographer based in both Switzerland and the UK. Recent shows include The Cellist for the Royal Ballet, The Suit, initially created for Ballet Black, and Jane Eyre and Victoria for Northern Ballet. As we'll hear, she recently made Mrs. Robinson for San Francisco Ballet and should be working on Of Mice and Men for the Joffrey. Kathy was Associate Artist at the Royal Opera House from 2002 to 2007 and Artistic Director of Bern Ballet from 2007 to 2013. I joined Kathy virtually on a sunny May 25th, 2020 at her home in Switzerland. We chatted happily while, unbeknown to us that very day, terrible things were happening in America that would change the world, for the worse certainly, uh, but also hopefully for the better. But we didn't know any of that. And we just had a privileged and fascinating conversation about the fall and rise of narrative ballet, approaching ballet through the theatre of character, emotion and story, and how stories reveal their imagery as we dig deeper into them. Hi, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very, very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for <laughs> inviting me. Uh, yeah, it's a privilege. Um, so I believe that you are in Bern, in Switzerland, and I'm very jealous. <laughs> Am I right <laughs> to be? Are you in a beautiful environment? Right now, yes. Well, I'm at home right now, but the, the weather is gorgeous, thankfully. And I've just gone back from a beautiful walk. Mm by the River Ara, and if you're ever in, near Bern, I recommend it. It's just quite heavenly. And so this morning there was no one there. I was all on my own. Oh, wow. So you, you have mountains around you and it's all... You could see the mountains, yeah, yeah, in the distance. Okay, not not a bad place to be. No. <laughs> um, so I think that uh, a couple of things have been paused in your life um, since we went into lockdown. What, what's the situation for you? Were you, you had a couple of shows just about to open, I think, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm counting my lucky stars because in February I premiered, as in got on stage, thankfully, the cellist mm -hmm. for the Royal Ballet, which was my first work for the main stage. And I have to say, looking back now at the timeline of Corona. I mean, I think it was by the skin of our teeth that that happened, but it did. Yeah. And then shortly after that, I went to San Francisco, where I had pre I'd made last summer a new work for them that should have premiered in March, uh, called Mrs. Robinson, mm. uh, Mrs. Robinson's perspective on the story of the graduate. And sadly, that didn't make it. And we were a week off premiere, and suddenly. Trump decided to um, cancel flights from Europe and it seemed very obvious that I needed to get back straight away. Oof. And anyway, the theatre had closed. Um, so that's on ice. It's ready to go when and, well, not when and if, when the yeah. company can get back on stage, it will be going again. And then I was supposed to be going um, actually now into Germany to stage my ballet, The Suit, which I'd created a couple of years ago now for Ballet Black, and I was staging that in Karlsruhe. Uh, that's obviously postponed. And I should have then been going to New York to restage Jane Eyre for American Ballet Theatre at the Met. Clearly not happening right now. Um, so all of that's definitely gone. And then next year is very, or next season is very um, in flux, very much in flux right now. So 
I should be making a, a, a ballet on Of Mice and Men for the Joffrey Ballet. Great. And that's set to premiere in the spring. We've just pushed it, the dates a little bit on that to try and give it a better chance of, of making it. And likewise for the Atlanta Ballet, I'm, I'm making a piece and hopefully we're getting Mrs. Robinson back on. But all of that's in America and my eyes sort of are constantly looking towards America to see how Corona is developing there. Yeah, yeah. At the moment, not great, but. Gosh, we'll gosh, what an extraordinary thing to be so busy. And so I imagine the momentum was like, ah, oh, I've got to do this, got to do. Oh, OK. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. It was really disappointing because, of course, you know, the, the Royal Ballet Commission was something I've wanted to do for 25 years. Mm. And, and there was a huge momentum around it. And then going straight on to San Francisco Ballet, which is another incredible company, felt really great. But, you know, you would just have to hope that, that that momentum will regain the same strength at some point. Yeah, I'm sure it will. But you must be thinking, okay, so how am I now going to fit all of that into a smaller space of time afterwards when everything does hopefully yeah, kick yeah. back off again? It's going to be well. It's Yeah, it's squash. definitely a lot of chats with my husband sort of every other day or not, not quite that frequently. But every time I get an email from one of the companies trying to sort of shift their dates and it's all getting jammed together... And we're just accepting that right now, whereas I would have always said, okay, I, I'll go away for three weeks and then and then come back because mm. we've got two young kids. Mm. Um, we might have a slightly trickier time for a, you know, a period of six months or so where, as you say, everything's trying to squeeze in. Yeah. But the other side of that is that you're at home now with your kids. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, that's lovely. Yeah. So, so, so right now, are you, have you been busy sort of dealing with all of this or are you actually having some downtime and some family time? Um, a bit of both. Um, so we, I was obviously trying to deal with homeschool for mm -hmm. a while. Um, in Switzerland, the schools went back just over a week ago. Um, so today I'm on my own. And that's <gasps> oh that's my also God. very nice. Yeah. So are you going to work or are you going to... <laughs> well, rest? both. I mean, actually, as it happens, it's it, it was only a week ago that a couple of um, projects moved from the autumn to next spring. And that seems to have really released my shoulders somewhat oh, yeah. because it, I was feeling quite a pressure, you know, am I going to be able to go and do this in September or not? You know, And now I know that I'm not mm. like mm. those, those two projects are going to be later. Um, I feel quite a lot more air around nice. me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm reading, I'm using the opportunity to read, to walk, to think um, and, and do some work. I try to make myself write notes when I'm doing my reading so that, it's it's not all forgotten in yeah. six months. Time. Okay, okay. Um, and um, sorry, I just got a message on my computer screen. Which I just got rid of. Um, have you been involved in any um, turning things digital, getting things out there for for the no, home market? Not exactly. I've, I mean, I've done um, several interviews and there's several coming up, um, and the Royal Ballet are going to be. Uh, streaming the cellist this week which is really exciting that's I'm very so exciting to share that um, and actually san francisco ballet are going to be streaming uh, another piece that i made for them in 2018 called snowblind yes okay. uh, and so both of those are going out on the 29th of may wow which i'm very happy about to be able to share those pieces i haven't made any digital work so to speak um, and i have thought about it a fair bit and it i found my mood to go really up and down with it mm. um it's, you know, I'll have days where I feel very inspired and just want to create something and interact with dancers. Mm -hmm. um, and then days where it feels like 
you know, I don't want to rush into this thing because I feel like I should. Mm. I, you know, there's there's a lot of um, material out there at the moment, um, and I I feel like I I need to figure out what would I do rather than what can yeah. one do. Mm. Yeah, um, finding your that, authentic place yeah. in that. Yeah, I think a yeah. lot of people are are struggling with that. Um, yeah. And of course, for some people, it's perfect. It's what they do anyway. For some people, it's quite a nice experiment and for other people it's just not true <laughs> and yeah. uh it, it's you know it would be fake and it would be for, for the sake of it and so yeah it takes yeah. a bit of courage maybe to not do that I suppose for some people yeah I, I I haven't made the decision either way I just haven't done it yet because it feels not authentic yet yeah but, but that's not to say that the right thing won't come up but I am you know letting that um brew a little bit yeah I think another phenomenon of this whole thing is mood changes <laughs> you know I certainly for myself I feel so like focused and energetic and I'm brilliant at homeschooling and I've got all of this energy one day and the next bit like mm, can we just watch another Frasier or you know yeah. can we just yeah and actually the, the privilege is being able to go with that um yeah. and then just see what floats to the surface I suppose yeah Okay, so I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things. Um, I guess your creative journey, really, first of all, uh, across your career, but also uh, through a process. Um, and I was interested in, first of all, across your career, um, your the journey towards and away from narrative, so kind of the fall and rise of narrative. Um, I know you've, you're quoted as saying that for ages, narrative ballet wasn't cool. But now you've got loads of offers, so, <laughs> you know, it's all changed. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that. What, what do you think dictates that? Why has that happened? Gosh, I wish I knew. That That's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, as, as I have said before, it's always been a passion of mine. Mm. Um, I love books and I love storytelling. Um, and I fought against being put in a specific box for many years. So as a choreographer, I mm. think even until... Um, let's say 2012, 13, I was really regularly making both abstract work and narrative work. Mm -hmm. And it was actually when I came to the end of my tenure as director of Burn Ballet um, that I started realizing, well, the pieces that I had been making that I'd loved were all narrative. Mm -hmm. And maybe I should, maybe it was time that I just um, sort of became okay about that. Like mm -hmm. that's what I love doing. And it, it, I'm not sure if that entirely coordinated or coincided with the time that I felt narrative was becoming more in vogue once more. Um, but it, it feels like that's been the case because at that point I did start getting a lot of offers and all of the commissions that I was being asked to do were for narrative pieces. Mm. Sometimes people were asking me to do work on a specific story and other times it was, could you make a story piece mm. for us? Um, and I don't know what brought that about. I mean, we'd, we'd had quite a long time of being into abstract, so maybe mm. it was just time. Maybe just the zeitgeist, yeah, that's how yeah. it goes. I think one of the things that has helped uh, was the large companies becoming aware that actually it's a good investment. So for a long time, they were the narrative ballets were the old existing pieces. And then there was the investment in, let's say, for example, Christopher Wielden's Alice, which is a huge show big investment and I think it was a co-production 
I want to say with the Royal Ballet and National Ballet of Canada. I'm not entirely sure about that mm. off the top of my head. But it's certainly paid off for everybody. I mean, it's gone around the world now, really. Um, and I think audiences do respond to stories told through movement and music. And, and so with the companies realizing that, okay, it's a scary prospect investing so much of their time and finance, obviously, in these large-scale narrative works, actually they are going to pay off. Mm. They, there's a good chance of them paying off. And, and I think that's definitely um, helped my case. Mm. And also maybe you helped your case by doing it well. And so they people are understanding that actually uh, a narrative ballet doesn't have to be a classic. You know, yeah. it, it can be yeah. contemporary. Uh, mm. And that, yes, of course, audiences do like them uh, if they're good. Um, so maybe there's a sort of a growing trust yeah. In, in, in people, your ability to uh, to tell stories in a way that isn't um, too explicit. When I work with choreographers, mainly in contemporary dance, but also in ballet, I have often said that, I'm, I'm sort of joking and I'm sort of not, that um, their worst fear is being explicit, <clears throat> not being inaccessible, but being explicit. Uh, and of course, nobody wants to spoon feed and signpost and we, mm -hmm. we take great care over that. But it's almost like narrative uh, or even story and definitely character have been like dirty words and you should yeah. be ashamed if you, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, 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 it, I mean, it, that, that, yeah, has irritated me for a really long time. And like you say, no one wants to spoon feed, but I think it's been greatly underestimated how difficult it is to, be clear and actually yeah. express something um, with without ambiguity <laughs> yeah. through dance. And it's a skill and it's a craft. And, and I have been working at it for a really long time by now. Um, and there are, there are points when I think actually it's really brave to, to go for clarity. And particularly when I'm, you know, I, I research a lot, I take these stories, I really care about them mm. and I have a, usually something that I want to say is very specifically that I want to say mm. about certain aspects of the story or character or relationship. Um, and while ambiguity is a wonderful and a very poetic tool, I want to use it deliberately, not just because I have no choice. Yeah. So I want to have that as a tool along with the tool that says clearly this is, this is what I'm, I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it, has been greatly underestimated that that side of choreography. I think one of the other things that that uh, just came to my head while you were speaking then was the influx of European theatre into British theatre. I think has helped. So I, I'm really a product of these two different traditions. British theatre. I grew up in the UK. My mm -hmm. parents were English teachers. I sort of was brought up on costume drama and love it. Um, and when I came to direct the Bern Ballet, brought that with me. Mm. Um, in fact, I created a version of Ibsen's Ghosts at the Royal Opera House um, that was the production that got me the job directing the Bern Ballet, and mm. I was asked to bring that as one of the first productions here. And yet it was received terribly here. It was an absolute nightmare <laughs> because the, the audiences and the critics here were really not used to narrative dance. Um, and they, they thought it was dusty and old-fashioned and all of those nasty words. And it 
took a great deal of strength for me at that point um, to not get defensive, mm-hmm. first off, to, to sort of find a way to listen to the criticism, um, but also listen to what myself, what was important to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a super challenge for me at that time because I I came to realize that while narrative and storytelling were really crucial to me and I absolutely would stand behind them no matter how fashionable or unfashionable that that pursuit might be. Um, Actually, I'd taken a lot for granted because of my British background. So for me to to dress dancers in a sort of period 1900-ish sort of way because that's when the story story is based, it didn't even occur to me that there was anything unconsidered about that. That was just natural. Um, Whereas being here in Germany with what they call Regie Theater, mm-hmm. so director's theatre, all of those things become questioned. So as in, in the UK, the, the writer is the sort of person, the, the voice that you're serving. Mm-hmm. In Germany and in sort of Germanic theatre, it's the director's vision that counts. And the question that the Swiss critics were asking was, well, you know, why, where's the interpretation in this version of Ghosts? Well, to me, <laughs> it was a ballet that, you know, there were there were plenty of aspects to it that did feel as if I was putting my voice into Ibsen's drama. And yet the look of it, which is a very superficial thing to judge, but nevertheless important, mm-hmm. was, was not considered. I hadn't interpreted. I'd gone for this sort of Munch-esque look. And it was a really good turning point for me to start thinking about how do I need all of these details to tell a story? Do we need to illustrate every aspect or can we strip away? Because actually what I really care about is how the bodies are expressing the emotion and the character traits of these different people Mm. in the story. So it was a super challenge. And I think I'm not the only person that does that. I think the more we see uh, sort of European theater coming to the Young Vic, going to the Barbican, people start to realize that there are different ways to tell stories and it doesn't need to look like an old-fashioned ballet to make a narrative ballet anymore. Mm. Interesting, isn't it? So the criticism kind of helped you reflect on what it is you had done and then sort of double down, actually, and think, no, I am going to do this, and I'm, and what's more, I'm going to give myself permission to become a bit more of an auteur and yeah. really make it your work. Yeah. How do you... Uh, I read that you, you talked about in, in terms of picking what it is you're going to adapt or which story you're going to tell um that you enjoyed finding things that had a little extra ingredient a kind of magic ingredient to to play with um can you give me examples of that and um how, how do you know when when you find that you know i read that in lady chatterley's lover it was coal or the snow in snowblind um so when you're reading something, what makes you think, ah, this this can be danced and this can be, um, I, this gives me space to apply my visuals and, and my concepts to it? Mm. Funnily enough, it's not usually that ingredient that draws me to make the ballet. It's okay. It's usually the central story and themes. So the, very often the relationships. I was thinking about that today, actually, as I was walking along. It feels because I've been so drawn to reading news at the moment and the stories in the newspapers, and they're all about numbers and everything gets very generalized. You know, everyone, um, it's not really about the individual. And even when you see news stories that do try to sort of zoom in on 
individual stories. They feel very sort of tokenesque and slightly sickly. Like I almost don't want the BBC to be telling me about Mr. Bloggs who lives in wherever and and his story. Um, I kind of feel like that's the role of of literature, of theatre, of music, of dance Mm. to start to, to bring us into other people's specific shoes. And it's usually that that does draw me into a, a story um and then if i'm drawn into that story i'll start to look at the context so in the case of snowblind it's that it was the dilemma it was actually the relationship between um ethan frome on the story it's based mm-hmm. on e- edith wharton's novella ethan frome and this triangle he with his wife cena and the the housemaid for want of a better word matty and it's a very simple story. You know, he's he's in an unhappy marriage, falls in love with the housemaid. They run off together. and and But it's got this twist at the end. They make a suicide pact. They, they, Ethan and Matty realise they can't live with or without mm. one another. And so they, they take this sledge ride, which they throw themselves into the elements. Um, and in the, my ballet interpretation, um, the sledge ride became a sort of avalanche, a snowstorm. They just threw themselves into this snowstorm which I expressed through a group of dancers mm-hmm. being that snowstorm. Um, but, but they don't die. They don't manage to die. <laughs> and, of course, Zena finds them at the end and they're broken. And I love this bit, this bit of the story where she had to, she finds them and she has to, or the three of them have to decide how they're going to continue life together because they have no choice. And it's this sort of great independency and proximity and yet kind of love-hate situation. So that really drew me into the story. Um, and that was the reason I wanted to make that ballet. And the at the same time, I was aware that I needed the group to give a context to that story of the three protagonists. And, okay, all you really need is there's a little party scene. You need to see the, the, them in a social context for various moments in the in the narrative. Mm. Um, but I try to avoid just using the corps de ballet for those social party scenes or market mm, scenes. Or, it's know. too easy. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. It just feels very illustrative. Um, and so I look at what the other opportunities are. How can I use these dancers, all of whom can, you know, their colors, their expressive tools. Mm. How can I add to the story of the protagonists? And in the case of Snowblind. I I wanted them to be snow, and it seemed to me that snow has so many varying qualities from the sort of playful, hypnotic, slightly caressing your skin, mm. sensual, and then it can be very biting and and it can smother you and suffocate you and and sort of make you stuck. Um, so I, I used those ideas to work with the group um, to enhance the story mm. in the middle. I see. Yeah, that's how I usually work. Okay, so actually you are initially, it seems, drawn by the theatre elements, so the relationships and the um, emotional relationships and the, the characters, and then you find the the landscape and the movement um, yeah. as you explore that. Um, so I have a question about um, acting, really, in the ballet world. And in my experience, I've been a bit surprised by how some of the ballet companies that I've worked with, which I've only done for the past couple of years, um, well, let's say some ballet dancers don't seem to want to have conversations about emotion and and character and that kind of thing. 
Others seem desperate for it and don't get it often enough and, and have come to me and said, oh my God, thank you. That You know, it's ages since we've done anything like that. It's so interesting. Um, and I suppose, you know, in my genuine ignorance, I was surprised by how it didn't seem to be part of the training necessarily for some companies. I recognise, you know, companies are different. But um, do you recognise that for a start? Do you think that ballet dancers sometimes don't uh, have the training or the experience to access the the emotional character landscape of a performance or not um that's a tricky one so i've been lucky to work with companies who very many but several companies who are excellent at that background Mm. work so i would i would sort of highlight specifically the royal ballet and northern ballet Mm. Um, both of whom I've worked with in the last year or so, and they really are, are very, very good at that. And I don't think you'd find a single dancer okay. in the com- those companies that would not be interested in those conversations. That said, particularly the the very large companies, the repertoire groups like the Royal Ballet, they'll be working on four or five pieces at the same time. Yeah, and that's very challenging for the young dancers. Maybe English isn't their first language. They're hopping into a you know half hour rehearsal, an hour's rehearsal, and then going back into a different style of movement language, a different story or no story. Mm. So that's pretty hard. And I think any actor would find that as, as challenging. Um, but I don't, having gone through the whole experience of creating a narrative work with them now, they all absolutely threw themselves into it by the end, even if it hadn't been there for every mm. single dancer in every half hour rehearsal. Mm. Um, so that that's great. Then there are companies. So uh, San Francisco Ballet, let's say, um, the Snowblind I created as part of their Unbound Festival in mm-hmm. 2018. They had 12 international choreographers all making half-hour pieces, and they made they sort of made this schedule over the summer. So every dancer in the company was in three or four works, and they premiered them all within a week. Yeah. So I mean, crazy wow, it was huge. Yeah. Um, and it's so exciting. It was really mm. fun and could have been very awkward with so many, you know, big choreographers there. Yeah. It was actually a joy. We had a wonderful time. Mm. Um, but my work was pretty much the only explicitly narrative work. Um, and I think it was unusual for the company as well. And that was certainly more challenging because while the the main trio got in absolutely what I was after, you know, within a couple of days, it was clear that they were very invested in the characters that I was asking them to to investigate. The group found it harder because I think that was a, you know, I was coming in saying, okay, we're making a story ballet, one thing that they weren't really used to, mm-hmm. although they'd done big story ballets. Um, and you are going to be sometimes sort of village people or, you know, acquaintances of these three characters. And at other times you're going to be snow. And I want you to think about the different qualities of snow. And So I went through this whole process with them because I am very collaborative in, mm. in that way. And I think it took them, well, I mean, the whole, the whole creative process was only three weeks. Maybe it took, you know, week and a half, two weeks for them to really understand what I was going on, going on about. And of course, in that time, they were also rehearsing other pieces. So yeah. It is a challenge. And then once I'd pieced it together, because I I usually go into a studio at the beginning with a really clear plan on my laptop and in my head. But, you know, as much Mm. as I'll share any of that and stick it on the wall, no one really understands (laughs) it until, you know, you actually put the ballet together. 
once they saw that and saw how it ran and how the, the different group scenes affected the paradas and so on, there was a huge, there was a big change, a big shift in understanding. And they were great. And actually this time making Mrs. Robinson was so much easier because they knew my process and what my values are. Right. Um, but I think it, it just takes, um, takes a bit of time for the dancers to not only understand your movement language, but to understand what it is that your work is about. Mm -hmm. And also what your expectations of them are. So to work collaboratively and expect them to be authoring material and investing emotionally. Like when you say, uh, I don't know, they're with you for two hours and then they go to somebody else and get their heads into a totally other different, different way of working. Then that's, then that's difficult. And and not every choreographer, even making narrative work wants that. So I, as a dancer, I really wanted to work with Kim Brandstrup um, because he was also creating narrative work. Mm. And I wrote to him and told him that, and happily he, he <laughs> gave me a job. <laughs> so I, nice. I worked with him for a couple of years, and it was wonderful and very confusing to me because he, he didn't want to tell you who you were or what your character was. So we, there was one production that we made on a load of different um, uh, Hans Christian Andersen stories, and we the dancers we didn't know who we were he was mixing he'd sort of made a plan and he knew how he was going to mix these i can't three or four different stories together but at the, for quite a long time in the creative process you didn't know if you were being the little mermaid or the shadow or the you know whatever else the stories were um, and you just had to trust that he was asking you to do physically what he felt the story needed um, and that was really different for me. And I, I love doing it. It's not at all how I work as a choreographer, but it was a good experience. It's so interesting, isn't it? So my, my journey is I came kind of from a contemporary theatre world in, in, into dance. And when I first started, I couldn't believe how much that happened. And I couldn't understand how little information the dancers had or indeed wanted sometimes um and how even when it was being made collaboratively the collaboration was with the body not the brain and of course this is not in all contexts but these were the experiences that I had and I was going oh right they do it like this here um and again sometimes I found that's what I could before actually is some people in big shows, some people, some dancers who need a bit more information could come to me and go what's this why am I do- oh yeah and how's it fitted oh yeah okay and other dancers really didn't want that really wanted to stay in the you know in the body really and just you know do as asked but obviously creating beautifully but not but not in that way um and I had to learn to understand that and also to respect that because because from a theatre world that's what you do you know you 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 figure it all out and then you invest Mm -hmm. in it emotionally really I guess um so yeah it was a really interesting part of the journey and I have uh, yeah genuinely learned to not think one is better than the other it's Mm -hmm. just it's just that they're different and they have different uh outcomes I suppose do you use um theatre tasks whatever that means uh in in the work or is it or would you always go in through the body i don't know what they would be give me an example oh, what might God. be a theater well i mean uh, good question um so th- so you know if a, if i think if a theater director was working on a, a show they might start exploring the emotion exploring the the context of the emotion and um setting up tasks to uh, elicit feeling and thinking around an emotion um Mm. and 
so, you know, I've worked with some contemporary dance choreographers who will do that. And out of that comes sure. movement rather than let's explore this movement and see where, what it can brush up against emotionally. Oh, no, it's but definitely the other way around. So the thing is that in the big companies that I've been working with recently, you don't have a lot of time. Yeah. You, you have to be quite efficient with what you've got. So I do a lot of work um, with by myself or sometimes with a dramaturg in terms of the research and I'll, I'll, I make I have a document that I've nicknamed the master plan and mm -hmm. in that plan every character or group of characters has a tab and I'll write any research that I found interesting about that character, any quotes, any film moments and I'll slowly distill any of that research into lists of words. So depending how big the part is, um, they'll have at least one list of words. And obviously, if let's say we're making Romeo and Juliet, Juliet's got a whole ton of lists because her character develops throughout the course of the piece. Um, and those words are usually adjectives, verbs, images. Sometimes they're taken directly from the novel. So mm -hmm. Lawrence was great. He gave me loads of um, material with Lady mm -hmm. Chatterley's Lover. Um, and sometimes they're more poetic and sometimes they're quite dry. Um, I'll usually try to define, you know, is this a vertical character? Are they, do they exist more on a horizontal plane? How do they walk? So I usually always start with a walk. Mm -hmm. um, and that might change mm -hmm. as we get it, get on in the process, but that's a good place to start mm -hmm. for me. And then with those lists of words, I'll spend the first few days or week and a bit just creating material from those words with the dancers. And depending on the dancers, the group, the company, I might give it to them as a task. So people might work more independently to create movement material, or I might really work with them one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll create a vocabulary for all of the characters before we start putting any scene together. So that when you come to putting those you know, really tricky scenes that it maybe involve four or five, in the case of Queen Victoria, sometimes 16 mm -hmm. different personalities in a room at the same time interacting. It's impossible to give everyone steps to do. Mm -hmm. So I need their help. And I don't want them to be doing all unison things because to me that makes no sense. If you've got yeah. a whole load of characters, they don't people don't move in unison generally. Um, so, so because they've got all this material by that point, they can contribute and I'll give direction to the scene. I'll tell people, okay, I want you to come on from here and you uh, you have an uh, interaction with this character here and they'll know what their feelings are about that character and they'll know their material, their, the way they walk, maybe a little dance phrase and they can start to make suggestions mm -hmm. um, like that and I'll shape it. Another thing, Kim Brandstrup, he's coming up all, all morning. Um, he once said to me and I found that very useful that he found it much easier to work from a room that was moving than a room that was static. Ah, okay, that's nice. And it's absolutely true. If everyone's standing there waiting to be told what to do, it's so um, blocking mm. for me as a mm. creator. Whereas if people are just doing something, even if it's not what you really want, mm -hmm. it's much easier to say, okay, can you do that low? Can you do it slower? Could you pause there or yeah. continue? You know. So they're continually off offering and you'll, you know yeah. you'll recognize it when it when what you're looking yeah. for appears yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. very nice um okay so structurally then as you said you work with dramaturgs i know you work with uh, edward kemp and asma hamid and probably others um how do you frame the the work in terms of deciding 
what to include, what not to include, and how to reveal. Uh, do you do that before or during? Oh, absolutely before. Everything's done before. I mean, um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, the work will reveal itself further in the actual making in the studio, sure. but I go with a very clear idea into the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually that's started in a conversation with the dramaturg. Uh, so Ed is someone that I've worked with over almost 20 years. We've done very many productions together. And um, we have conversations, so we'll, we'll talk about I've, I usually have the idea of the piece, and he'll ask why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I try to start articulating it. We know each, each other so well now that I don't mind sounding yeah. a bit silly. Um, and he'll ask me what I can already imagine. So there are usually scenes that I already have in my head mm-hmm. that, in the case of Snowblind, seeing as we're using that as an example, it was that final scene, the trio. Okay. Um, so you start with that. And sometimes there's a bit more work to be done before. Um, so when the story is more complex, so let's take the example of Victoria. I was asked to create a ballet on Queen Victoria by Northern Ballet. Um, but beyond the title, and actually they said they did want it to be done in period, which is mm-hmm. pretty obvious to me, mm-hmm. Um I was very free to to take any entrance point to that theme. And that was really hard. Yeah. Um, and it was the first time that Uzma and I had worked together. So we were getting to know each other at the same time. And, you know, there are so many perspectives on that story. And ultimately, I just read until I find the one that seems to resonate personally, because mm-hmm. I have to know that I am going to be able to stand in those shoes to make the piece. And until I feel comfortable with that, then I just need to keep looking. And in the case of Victoria, it was finding this little bit of the story um, about her youngest child, Princess Beatrice, and and how she had sort of been her mother's companion throughout her whole life. And then mm. at the end of her mother's life had written Victoria's story. She'd rewritten Victoria's very, very many diaries. And I thought that was so interesting to imagine a daughter who's, for their whole life stood next to their mother. And then how did they write that story um, and, and actually edit that story quite considerably? Mm-hmm. So this, and for some reason, that viewpoint resonated with me and I recognized it, sat with it for a month or two. And, and even though we kept coming up with other ideas, it was that one that was still sort of singing in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I found that entrance point, it's, much easier. You just have to be, as they say in German, consequent, like you follow that journey um, and you find the scenario that way. Yeah. And that sustains you through the whole journey then. Yeah. 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 Lovely. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk to you also about um, the sector generally, really, which I know is a you know, a small term for a huge thing. But um, obviously you were the artistic director of Burn Ballet from 2007 to 2013. So you have a lot of organisational um, experience. Um, and now as a, an independent, I guess, um, what are your reflections on the sector? Um, perhaps pre-COVID, first of all, what concerns do you have about it? What issues do you think there are at the heart of it? Do you have any Oh gosh, that's a big question. Is it too big? So I'm, I'm thinking. I'll be honest. I'm, th- I'm wondering about how you're feeling about gender imbalance. 
in terms of female choreographers, female leaders, uh, obviously uh, lead roles for women is something that you're uh, mm. keen on. Um, but also in my mind, I worry for the arts, but dance and ballet um, in terms of access issues and diversity. Uh, and I wonder just how healthy you think it is as, as a, a sector and, and, and what, what perhaps what you fear for. Um, I might just turn the question around a little bit. So, obviously, I'm I'm a female choreographer. I'm I am actually just a choreographer. <laughs> um, it has been a theme throughout my career, and I've just kept going. And I'm very happy with the the path that I've had so far. Um, there is clearly a gender imbalance. I mean, it's just. It's just there. There's been plenty of people that have shown that with statistics and so on. Mm. Um, and it's getting better. I think over the last what, five or six years, maybe, um, I think people are beginning to acknowledge it who were not acknowledging it before. Okay. And that's a huge step because as soon as we start to say, okay, there is an imbalance and start to acknowledge that, that you know, many people have said, it's not about whether someone's a man or a woman or wh whatever their, or their racial identification might be or any other sort of identification. It's about talent and it's about quality. And I really find that a frustrating argument because who is to judge the, that talent and quality? You, you, it's absolutely not the case that 95% of women are not talented choreographically or whatever. It's, it, it would just be wrong, in my opinion, to assume that. Um, and it's a question of, of people going out and looking for those voices. And many of the gatekeepers have been for a long time just sitting in their castle and expecting people to knock on the door. And for whatever reason, not everyone gets to that door. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I think it's beginning to change. And I'm very grateful to the people that have done a lot of work to bring about that change. It's hard for me to be the person doing it and be that advocate as well. You know, I'm trying to change by doing mm. because it, it just doesn't feel comfortable for me to start kind of banging on that door and yelling about it and, and at the same time saying, and it's and by the way, it's me that you want to be employing. Right? just doesn't feel okay. right I just want to do a good job so that's what I've been focusing on and and it's been working you know? yeah okay so it's, it's a team effort I think everyone's got their role to play and you know it's one of the things that has been challenging of course is having a family um, I don't say that that men don't have that experience that challenge as well um, but certainly I, I know that it's something that women have difficulties with how do you balance being a mum and being a, a creator who inevitably is on the road a lot. Sure. Um, and I've just been trying to do it with the help of my husband and my family and friends. And, you know, and I think it's important to have role models. I looked at a choreographer called Dee Dee Veldman, who mm -hmm. did it a few years before me. And that was really encouraging to see That's her, nice. you know, forged through. And so I hope that I can be that role model to some younger women and men. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's that. One of the things that I struggle with at the moment in terms of dance and, and the sector, as you call it, um, is diversity in a, a wider sense. Um, and this is this is my personal struggle, so mm. maybe it will help to answer the question. 
I want to tell stories. And as much as I love stories for the 19th century that fit quite well into ballet companies, those aren't only the only stories that I am interested in expressing and telling. Um, and I'm getting a bit stuck because as soon as you move into the 20th century, then racial diversity and, and these themes become really much more of an issue um, because it's one thing, well, we know that there is a, a lack of diversity within many ballet companies around mm -hmm. the world. We need more dancers of color in ballet companies. Um, now I'm only in interacting with part of that story. There's, there's obviously layers to it, mm -hmm. but if I want to tell a, a specific story that not just, I don't mean in terms of how to cast roles, because I think we're beyond the point where we have to cast as we imagine. So Rochester, I don't think people imagine Jane Eyre, or Jane Eyre to be a dancer of colour necessarily. And yet it's fine now, I think, to, to cast in any way those parts. But as soon as we encounter a story, a story where race is actually part of the story, then things get more sensitive or disability, you know, mm -hmm. equally that that's a, a problem that I've encountered. So for example, with Lady Chatterley's lover, Clifford, Lady Chatterley or Lord Chatterley, Lady Chatterley's husband is in a wheelchair. He was wounded in, in the war and he can't move. Now, in order for me to tell the story, I needed to do a flashback. This was just how it worked out. So I needed to anyway work with the dancer who was not in a wheelchair and also who could act or be that character in a wheelchair. But I was really sensitive to to the you know the problem of of working with an able-bodied dancer in a wheelchair. And when I started rehearsals, I shared this concern with the dancers. And I said, you know, there are, there are reasons. We've been through all of the options here. There are reasons that I feel I do want to work with a dancer who also can move without a wheelchair. But um, I want to be, do it really properly and with sensitivity. And if any of you particularly want to investigate this character, or if any of you don't want to investigate this character, then please come and talk to me. And as it happened, one of the dancer's stepfathers was paraplegic and came and said he really would love to do that part mm. and another for another reason. And actually we ended up working really well on that, that role and, and there was no, I didn't receive any feedback that was problematic at all and I think it worked. Okay. Um, but I'm conscious every time I approach another story that there, there are these difficulties with it about identity and diversity and, and the sorts of dancers that you can find in a ballet company. Yeah. And to me, this is problematic. <clears throat> I don't have the answer, but it's a problem. And it, it um, you know, regardless of whether a story is about, for example, race, where the story comes from and who tells the story, you know, who, is, who, is, who are the characters in that story is yeah. limited by who the dancers in the company are. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, <laughs> endless, brilliant non-white stories to tell um but it's difficult to have a bunch of white people tell them you know yeah. isn't it so so we're already shutting the door on so much interesting uh literature or you know yeah. so so many interesting episodes in history etc um 
So I guess ultimately it's up to the people who make the companies and who, um, you know. Well, it's more than that. It's the same as female choreographers. It's right from the beginning. Yeah. It's about nurturing the dancers yeah, from and the opportunity. corners of society right from the beginning. Yeah. So it's going to take a long time. I don't expect to see it all change yeah. in the next five years, but I hope that we we find a way to change things. Well, I hope so too. And um, I wonder what COVID does to that because, of course, there is the fear that now we fall back on our old favourites and the classics um, and that potentially cuts off a whole swathe of people, thinking, audiences. Um, or there's the opportunity to really reconfigure things now and um, rethink scale and rethink what stories might be told. And, and so diversity also in terms of um, financial access, you know, whether people can afford yeah. to come to it. Do you have any hope um, in this COVID environment for, for any, any sort of aspects of positive change? Um, Too soon, maybe? I mean, it's going to be, there's going to be a huge financial difficulty. I mean, there's clearly a lot of fear. I I actually, I'm not sure if going back to the old favourites will be the recipe. Um, I think being daring at this point has also got a really good chance of success. I think initially it'll have to because we're not going to jump back into full opera houses with everybody sitting next to each other looking at a proscenium arch ballet mm -hmm. with 60 mm -hmm. dancers standing in very squashed lines on stage. That's simply not going to happen. So I think there'll have to be some really inventive thinking um, being done from all organizations and everyone's desperate to get back on stage and, and yeah. in a theater or in, not even in a theater actually I think people are desperate to be performing and creating again and so I think at least initially there will be more experimental ideas um, coming out whether we can hang on to them and not go back as you say to the the box office the cash cows mm. that they like to say here mm. uh, I don't know but I I get a feeling that there will be um, an appetite for new as well. Um, I mean, I was thinking about what I might hope from the comeback of theatre, because it will come back. I feel like, and I'm speaking personally, mm -hmm. I can be quite a lazy audience member or even cynical, and I don't like to mm -hmm. admit that, but I think I can be uh, sometimes. So I'm lucky enough to very often get invited to see performances from colleagues. Mm. And even when I'm not invited, if there's something that I feel I should see, I, I am a, a choreographer who gets around. I do like to see what's going on. Mm. Um, and so I go and see a fair bit, especially when I'm traveling. And very often I sit back and I want to be impressed. And there might even be something that kind of a little bit nasty in me that doesn't always want to like I want to be impressed I want to like things but I'm also not surprised if I don't and mm. I don't like admitting that but I think it might be it's true. not uncommon I don't think yeah and now we are the stakes are going to be so much higher like any trip to the theater for either performer or audience member at least for the next sort of year or two that's a real investment not just of the ticket cost but of actually of your well-being, your health, you know, you're, you're investing because you know that the potential is there for you to feel really connected with people, with the universe, with your life, with whatever it does to you. But at the same time, you might, you know, there's a risk, you might get sick. And we're all suddenly really conscious of germ exchange, you know, even if it's not COVID, 
you know, you can just as easily now I'm very aware of any cold that I might catch or something. So I hope that it will make people when they go to the theatre, myself included, really want to be there and sit forward and lean in and want to connect as best they possibly can with what is being presented and mm. performed. Um, and maybe invest more before that visit. So this is something that I have done as long as I can remember. I, I try to make my process as open as possible. So when I was directing in Bern, we had open rehearsals every fortnight so that the audience members could come and see how the piece was developing. Um, I do a lot of uh, this kind of thing. I talk. I like mm. talking. Mm. I like sharing the, the, the insides of a ballet as much as the end of a ballet, the outsides of it. Um, and I hope that it will mean that we're, we're all getting really good at digital. So hopefully companies will be very practiced by the end of COVID at how to make uh, the processes open, at least mm. online. And I hope that it will make audience members think, okay, well, I'm not only paying 50 quid or whatever it is to, for a ticket here, but I'm investing time and potentially my health in this event. I want to do it. It means something that much to me that I'm going to do it. But actually, let's get the full value from it. Yeah. Why don't I read up, read the program, read what it's about, read the novel, yeah. watch a film, whatever, yeah. whatever it is before I go so that it really gets me rather than I just sit back and think, well, it might flutter past yeah. me. Try to make ourselves more available to it because we're, for a while at least, not taking it for granted so much. Yeah. And think of the potential that dance has now. I mean, it's. I, I just hope that we go back to a society that touches each other again, literally. Mm. Um, although, you know, I'm not that fussed about shaking hands, to be honest. But in general, I hope that people will continue to live in contact and hug one another. Um, but they, that that is so much more meaningful with dance now. I mean, it, you know, all of the things that dance amplifies normally mm. will be kind of screaming out loud right now. And that's exciting. I have this image in my head of a, uh, you know, a huge theatre with little glass booths with people sitting, audience members mm. in glass booths, watching dancers touch each other. And how it's like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. And you're right, it does just highlight the the thing we took for granted. But the 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 thing that's beautiful at the heart of this is actually touch and proximity yeah. and exchange, um, both between the dancers, but also, of course, with the audience as well. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe a dance of all the art forms might speak the loudest now because that is the one thing we have been denied mm. is that yeah. sort of physical proximity. Okay, well, I'm just going to ask you a couple of quickfire questions from my little yellow envelope. Um, I'm just going to, that we've just talked about that. Is there anything you want to do in dance that you haven't done yet? Well, there's tons of more stories I want to do. Anything uh, other than that? Like, so uh, stories that haven't been told, but also different genres or different uh, contexts? I mean, all sorts of spaces, places. Yeah. It's, it's usually, I want to go everywhere and work with lots of people. I, you know, one of the highlights of my career has been working three times in Cuba. I absolutely love oh, working. Yeah. yeah, everyone says um, that. There. Mm. But, but going to different places, working with different groups of people um, and inevitably being led by, therefore, into different stories and worlds and spaces, all of those things. Okay. Theatre? As in to work with drama theatre yeah. rather than dance yeah. theatre. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. 
I'd, I'd big big shout out any directors hey, please. <laughs> hey you heard it here I get 10% yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything you are rubbish at within your job within my job I was going to say this, just, um, <laughs> or, or what um, I mean by that is you know what what do you shy away from that perhaps you shouldn't or what do you not enjoy perhaps where you've said you, in, you know, enjoy, enjoy conversations like this but are there any elements that you avoid um Gosh, you can say no. No, I like all of. I love. I love my job. I do. <laughs> I really love all the different sides of it. There's. I mean, maybe the thing that I'm least good at, and I get people to help me, is figuring out technical difficulties. As in, um, so I love the creation of movement, and I love coaching it, and bringing out the dramatic qualities and all of those to to figure out sometimes how. A, a precise lift works or to get a group of dancers all doing things together or in the right canon or figure out the pattern that it actually works. I'm, I'm less good at that. Okay. Um, so they do that, do they? Well, I didn't know. I just have to knuckle down or okay. I mean, I've got assistants who yeah, help. Okay. Jenny Patsell is a long-term assistant and she's brilliant at it. So if she's with me, I'm fine. Digs down into the, the yeah, the I usually work with, with the team. Yeah, around. that's what I like about my job is that I'm there for all the interesting conversations and we'll have this, you know, amazing idea that's very detailed and complicated. And then I go away for a couple of days and come back and it's done. And it's such a pleasure. <laughs> I don't have to do any of the nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, is there a single person alive or not who you most want to get or appreciate your work? Ooh. Oh, gosh, you should have. Warn me about that question. <laughs> I think you know. I think I sometimes ask that of people I work with because I always give the example of somebody answered Uncle Pete because Uncle Pete, this person had a real Uncle Pete, and they he was not involved in the dance world, and he was basically uncertain and a little uh, cynical, maybe. But actually, he came to see the work and loved it, and then you know got it. Yeah, I, I don't think I can answer that okay, one today. No problem. Um, and what, uh, for a specific show or just your, your practice generally, what what would failure be? Um, I guess it would be not managing to express what I was after. I mean, that's the long and the short of it. There's There's different elements of failure. There's things... You know, if you if you're working with a group and it doesn't click, you can feel mm. the failure of that. Um, if you get really dreadful critics across the board, that can feel like mm -hmm. a failure. Um, ultimately, I suppose the worst feeling is when you just don't like what you've done. Mm. You don't think it's what you imagined yeah. it could be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was I very interested in what you said about getting people into your open rehearsals because I'm a big fan of that and I think that's, of course, a brilliant way of opening up art forms to people. Um, when you do that, do you ask for feedback? Or is sometimes. It, yeah. Um, yeah, sometimes. Depends on the, the context. Sometimes I'll surprise people and ask questions. Um, I mean, I get a lot of feedback. I ask people for feedback, but... Uh, the best feedback doesn't tend to come from people who are surprised in, by a question in an open rehearsal. It's it's going to be from people who from are... the work. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Okay. Kathy, thank you so much. 
It's such a pleasure talking uh, in a bit of depth with you about, about your processes. And so thanks for making the time and good luck with all the many projects that are going to be falling on your lap one sunny day soon. Thanks Thank for joining me. Thank you. Likewise. Take care. Well, that's it for this episode of Downtime. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please do listen to the other episodes with other brilliant artists and arts leaders and please also have a look at my website, www.thecoad.org. May you be lucky and well enough to have a little inspired downtime of your own. <laughs>